Gospel reading is John 14, 15 through 31. Um, it occurred to me while I was reading over this in preparation that uh, for the Christian life, this is, this has the, the what to do, the why to do it, and the how we do it all here. Um, so try and pay attention to that as, as you listen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of God, not made by the will of man. Thank you uh, to our readers. Y'all may not know this, but something new we're doing is that whoever preaches on a given week also picks the readings. Um, so I just want to give a shout out to Kyle. I gave you those very hard Old Testament names and you killed it. <laughs> uh, once again, good morning. Welcome to Grace and Peace. My name is Noah. Um, 
and I'm just glad you're here to worship with me, whether it's the thousandth time or the first time. So there's this singer-songwriter that I've been listening to a little bit lately. His name is Noah Gunderson, and I don't just listen to him because we have the same name, uh, but actually because I think he gives voice to something in a really moving way that a lot of our neighbors feel right now, that a lot of us feel, if we're honest. And it's this feeling that God is absent. So for example, listen to these lyrics from a song called Empty from the Start. Stars falling from the sky, buildings burning all the time, tall rivers running wild, stretching out for miles and miles. I think I heard a good man say that God is love and love has made us, but have you seen the news today? I have, and I think God has gone away, if he was ever there anyway. Because anyone who tells you they were born good is lying, we're just born and we're dying. And he goes on to sing in the chorus, this is all we are, blood and bones, no Holy Ghost, empty from the start. And you can hear it a little bit in the lyrics, uh, but if you listen to the actual song, you hear the emotion behind it even more in the music. It's really sad. This is not a smug, angry atheist. This is someone sad about losing their faith. I mean, it actually reminds me of a quote from uh, another artist, a novelist, who, again, I think gives voice to this feeling that a lot of people in the modern world have. His name is Julian Barnes, and he opens one of his novels with this line. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And if that's the honest confession of many of our secular, non-believing friends and neighbors, I think we could tweak it a little bit for those of us who are believers in Jesus and say, I do believe in God, but often I still miss him. See, the normal human reality, whether you're a believer or not, on this side of Eden is to experience the absence of God. And we experience it painfully because it's not what we were made for. Uh, so in Genesis 3, we read of Adam and Eve hearing God taking his evening walk in the garden. And after they sin, they and we simply do not experience the intimate presence of God in that same way, the way we were created to experience it. So why do I bring this up? Well, today we're going to think a lot about the absence of God, and here's why. As we come to this section in John's Gospel, we're still in what's called the Farewell Discourse. Uh, it's this big chunk of teaching that Jesus gives his disciples right before he goes to the cross. It's sort of his farewell address, the last big things he wants to tell his friends and disciples. And Based on their response to this news, uh, I think we see that humans haven't changed much in how they try to make sense of the pain of God's absence. So a few verses before what Courtney read, uh, Peter displays a little hubris. He makes a promise that he famously cannot keep. Uh, the other disciples, they all seem confused and maybe frustrated as they keep interrupting Jesus with questions. <laughs> and I think we kind of do the same things when we feel God's absence in our lives. Now on the flip side, it's true, we aren't the disciples. None of us in here has the experience of physically seeing Jesus yet. And it's also true that unlike the disciples in this particular moment, we do have the Holy Spirit, which this passage very clearly teaches us. So God is not totally absent, but we do still experience some level of his absence because his kingdom has not yet fully come. And I would venture uh, that you feel it in your life often, maybe daily. You experience God's absence when your family life, your marriage feels unsustainable. You experience God's absence when the daily grind of work feels absolutely futile and meaningless, like it's going nowhere. We collectively experience God's absence anytime there's another school shooting or a natural disaster that just senselessly a lot of lives are lost. 
when you experience hurt in the church, which is especially confusing and painful because if there is anywhere where it should not feel like God is absent, it is in his church. You know, it's those moments in life that leave you crying out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or maybe more like Isaiah, you find yourself looking at the sky and crying out to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Those are the moments when we feel God's absence. Yeah, I think if we read and pay attention to Jesus's words in this passage, we do find an abundance of grace for our predicament. Um, We find Jesus instructing his disciples on how to respond to his impending absence. And I hope this isn't news. We do believe Jesus is actually God here. Um, So that leads to this big question that we're going to consider together just for the next half hour or so. How would Jesus have us respond to the absence of God? How would Jesus have us respond to the absence of God? So let's pray and then consider that question. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are present even when we don't feel it. We thank you for these good words of Jesus and pray that you would use them to comfort and to convict, to encourage and exhort and to change our hearts. We pray that the spirit would be palpably among us as we look at the word. Pray these things in Jesus' name and by the spirit. Amen. So the first thing we see in this passage, it kind of hits us right in in the face, right out of the gate. Uh, As he's telling them that he won't be with them anymore, Jesus tells them again and again to keep his commandments. So in verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He repeats the same idea in verse 21 and 23. And then in verse 24, he says it in a kind of negative way. He says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So it's overwhelmingly clear here that as Jesus is getting ready to leave, he's exhorting them to keep his commandments even in his absence. So one pretty big answer to the question of how to respond to God's absence is to keep his commandments. Now, I think this is a profoundly practical instruction for the simple reason that we're most tempted to break commandments when no one is watching, right? Kid's not gonna stick his hand in the cookie jar when mom and dad are standing right there. They're gonna wait for mom and dad to leave. But I wanna be clear about this. I don't actually think Jesus is doing like a shame, fear thing here. I, I don't think he's saying this to communicate, you know, don't break the rules I gave you, I'll be watching. He's not Santa Claus. You know why I think that? Uh, because he doesn't say, if you fear me, keep my commandments. He says, if you love me. Now to be clear, we should fear Jesus. The man is God. It would be irrational to not have a healthy sense of awe and fear when you're in his presence. But in this moment, in this passage where we are, there's already plenty of fear in the room as evidenced by how the disciples are responding and just this finality with which Jesus is speaking to them. But it is still true, I think, that the temptation to give up on Jesus's commandments will be stronger once he's gone and he knows that. And when that moment comes that he isn't there and it's hard to keep his commandments, they need to remember their love for him. You know, love actually ends up being a much better long-term motivator than fear. So one of the professors at the seminary, he has this illustration to explain this that I think is really helpful. So I sometimes like to run, like for exercise. Sometimes, every once in a while, I even kind of like it. (laughs) But in my heart of hearts, if I'm honest with you, I run just because it's an easily accessible form of exercise and you have to do something to stay healthy, right? I run out of fear, fear of what will happen if I don't. And here's what this means like in reality. I am an incredibly inconsistent runner. 
If it's too cold or too hot, that's enough for me. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> right? But contrast me with someone who just loves running for its own sake. They love zooming through the park. They love that feeling in their calves of the burning. They love their heart pumping. They have no need to track it with their Fitbit to feel like they really did something like I do. Right? That person is going to be a much more consistent runner than I am. Why? Because they love it. From a purely practical standpoint, love is a better motivation than fear. So how do we apply this to us? What does it look like to strive to keep Jesus' commandments even, will, even when we feel his absence? But we need to remember why we love him. I think this can look a lot of different ways. If you're like me, there are probably specific stories from the Gospels or the rest of Scripture, maybe hymns or songs, poems, little things that marked moments in your walk of faith that were key. And when you're struggling with God's absence, it can be a good time to revisit those things. And in fact, quite a few of the Psalms of Lament do this. They honestly and openly, they name hard realities right now. They complain to God, they are frustrated, and then they turn and they say something like, but I will appeal to this, to the years of the Most High, right? They remember God's faithfulness in the past. So I would just ask you, what would it look like for you this week to revisit something or someone um, that God first used to show you his beauty. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'll assume a little bit and say that by being here, you're open in some way. So I would challenge you gently, what would it look like for you to ask a Christian you know, why do you find Jesus beautiful? In fact, I think that's a good question we could all sit with. Whether you're a Christian or not, a lot of Jesus's commandments on their face these ones that he's telling us to keep are pretty mind-bogglingly insane. <laughs> Blessed are the meek. Really? Have you been on social media? <laughs> Love your enemies. It's a little naive. <laughs> Don't be anxious about daily provisions like food and clothing. But if you do engage with people who've truly encountered Jesus and who've been following him for a time, you will find this interesting phenomenon that commandments that seem insane and burdensome they actually become the deepest desires of human hearts over time in light of Jesus. So there's an old hymn that says it this way that I love. Blessed are the eyes that see him, blessed the ears that hear his voice. Blessed are the souls that trust him and in him alone rejoice. And here it is, his commandments, his commandments, his commandments, then become their happy choice. So that's one answer to our question. How do we respond to the absence of God? Motivated by love, we strive to keep his commandments. Another answer that we find in this passage is that we look for Jesus. We look for him, and that might be counterintuitive because he's leaving, but stay with me so I can show you how I got there. So the middle chunk of this passage is interesting, but it feels a bit circuitous, at least to me. So on the one hand, the whole context of this is Jesus telling his disciples he's about to leave them. Uh, but on the other, he's, in verse 18, he starts saying things like, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Okay, how is that going to work? And then skipping down a little bit, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he'll be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And the word manifest in Greek there, it literally just means to make visible. I will make myself visible to him. So by the time we get down to verse 22, I think you can kind of feel Judas's question, right? <laughs> it's like he's saying, wait, wait, slow down, Jesus. Okay, you're leaving us, I follow, but you're gonna come back, I also follow, but when you come back, we'll be able to see you, but the world won't. You're gonna have to explain that one to me. How is that gonna work? 
And notice the answer Jesus gives. He just kind of repeats himself. The question is, how are you going to make yourself visible to us? And he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my, my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. I think, but a little more straightforwardly, that Jesus is saying, I will be visible to you in those who keep my words. And in fact, I think this is just another way of saying what he's already said in John 13, 35. In that verse, he says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So the idea there is that people will see Jesus when they see you and me obeying his commandments, the biggest one being love one another. And in that context, Jesus is telling them how the watching world will know him. And in this context today, he's talking about how they, his own people, will see him once he's gone. He essentially tells them, look for me where you see my word being kept. It's a different angle on the same truth. And there's another reason textually that I see this. You've probably heard this before, but in Greek, there are two different words for you. One is plural, one is singular. And this passage has the word you 30 times, literally 30. Guess how many times it is used in the singular? Not even once. <laughs> there is an assumption, as Jesus is telling them, that he's about to leave them, that there is a them, <laughs> not just individuals. So again, how would Jesus have us respond to God's absence? We look for him because he says he'll be visible to us in each other. We look for those who keep the words and commandments of Jesus, and we find both Jesus and the Father there. To put it really bluntly, we look for him in the church because that's where he's promised he will make himself visible to us. I think this is a particularly hard teaching for us in the cultural moment we live in uh, for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of anti-institutionalism kind of in the air right now. The church is an institution. Um, anything with any kind of authority structure uh, is kind of at the outset viewed suspiciously, and the church does have an authority structure laid out in scripture. I think anything older than like 10 or 15 years at this point is viewed as hopelessly corrupt by past sins. The church is 2,000 years old. That's a lot of time to accumulate some baggage. <laughs> and none of that even begins to touch on our personal experiences. If you hang around the church long enough, you will be hurt. And let me say it clearly, because you may have just heard me say you might be hurt. No, you will be hurt. The converse is also true. You hang around the church long enough, you're going to hurt somebody. It's good to have some humble self-awareness as we try to live together. <clears throat> but even in light of all these things I've just said, here's a truth that we cannot let go of. Jesus loves his church. He made her his own at great cost to himself. And he, more than anyone in the universe, knows what it is to be deeply hurt by the church and to still go on loving her. So tying some of this together, you know what this means? I think one of the ways that Jesus most movingly, at least to me, makes himself visible in his church is in those who still love the church when, by worldly logic and wisdom, they absolutely should not. I don't know if you know anyone like this. A few weeks ago, uh, on the weekend of Juneteenth, there was an op-ed in the New York Times. It was by a woman named Rachel Swarns, and the title was this. It was just, my church was part of the slave trade, this has not shaken my faith. Uh, Rachel Swarns is a black woman, 
and she's a faithful Catholic, and she's a historian, and she just released this book called The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. And this op-ed, it was about that book and what it was like for her to do this research and learn about the Catholic Church's involvement in the slave trade. And in particular, she writes about this mass sale of slaves that occurred in 1838. So at the time, Georgetown University, they were in deep financial trouble. Uh, and a few of the Jesuit priests there decided to pay off their debts by selling 272 slaves at once. It is one of the largest mass sale of slaves that ever happened. And it saved Georgetown, uh, but slave families were torn apart. Kids were separated from their parents. And even granting that slavery, especially just in American history in the South, is very evil, this moment feels particularly evil to me. But here's the thing. Some of those slaves were themselves Catholic. Miss Swarns writes this about one family. Members of the Mahoney family, which was torn apart in that 1838 sale, they passed their devotion from one generation to the next. They joined parishes, they baptized their children, they became lay leaders and religious leaders who worked to reshape the church by building institutions that would be more reflective of and responsive to black Catholics. At least two members of the family became nuns who ran schools for black children in the 20th century. Many Mahoney descendants remain Catholic to this day. They have joined other descendants to press Georgetown and the Jesuits to make amends, prodding the institutions to break new ground in the movement for reconciliation in America. And then she concludes her op-ed with this. So when people ask me whether my research has shaken my faith, I shake my head. I am inspired by the families who press the church to be true to its teachings. Their history is one of struggle and resistance, of family and faith. Unearthing their stories has deepened my connection to Catholicism and transformed my understanding of my own church. Rachel Swarns looked into her church's history and she found moments where it absolutely looked like God was absent. But she also found Jesus manifesting himself there in the witness of families like the Mahoney's, a church, loving a church that had hurt them very deeply. So where have we been? Uh, we've been asking how Jesus would have us respond to God's absence, and we've seen that he calls us to follow his commands out of love. We've seen that he tells us to look for him in and among the church because he promises to meet us there. And as we keep moving, uh, you might be asking an honest question. Uh, are keep God's commandments and be involved in church really an adequate answer to the problem of God's absence? Let me ask you this. When you are in that dark place, when those lyrics I quoted at the beginning hit really close to home, would you find keep God's commandments and just go to church to be helpful advice? I wouldn't, if I'm being honest. But here's the hard thing. Those exhortations, while they're not enough to actually solve the problem, they're still necessary. Jesus is 100% correct to exhort us to holiness, to love of God and love of each other. See, had Adam and Eve followed God's commandments, loving him and each other, they never would have been plunged into a world marked by God's absence, and neither would we. They had God's presence, but they willfully forfeited it. And this suggests something, that as horrifying as the absence of God is, some part of us wants it. Our hearts are deeply sick. When we sin, that is, when we fail to keep God's commandments or to love his people, we make a small, honest confession with our lives. We basically say, I don't want God here. 
I don't want a world where he's in charge and not me. In some sad way, we want him to be absent. We're like the prodigal son in the story who wants the inheritance of his father, all the good things his father can give him, but doesn't want the father himself. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. There are times when we experience the deep absence of God, and it's not our personal sin that has caused it. Please hear that. I'm thinking of abuse situations, deep spiritual depressions that happen in everyone's walk of faith. If that's where you are today, please don't hear me just telling you what you're feeling is your fault. What I am saying is that the problem of God's absence is much deeper and much more dire than we think it is. While Jesus is right to tell us to strive to keep his commandments, and he's right to tell us that he'll be visible to us in and among his people, he himself knows that is not enough. Rules, as necessary as they are, cannot fix our sin problem. And community, as great as it is, cannot fix our sin problem either. In fact, you can find any number of religions that will give you a set of rules in a community and promise you salvation that way. But the gospel is different. It starts with a different message and a different promise. So let's look back at the passage and see the last thing that Jesus promises here. What is the obvious part of this text that I have not talked about yet? I think I'm hearing mumblings, yeah. The spirit, yes. <laughs> Here's the paradox of this passage. Jesus is telling them that he's leaving them, and at the same time, he is promising to be with them. He says he won't leave us as orphans, that he'll come to us, that he and the Father will make their home with those who love him. And the question is how? How are they and we going to see him when the world doesn't? The answer is by his spirit, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Did you notice that Jesus says another helper? As in, I'm sending someone like myself to be with you forever. Behind this paradox of Jesus being both present and absent with his disciples is another paradox, and that's the doctrine of the Trinity. And we have to spend a second thinking about it to make sense of what Jesus is saying and to understand the hope we have in this passage. So the doctrine of the Trinity simply stated is this. There exists one God and three persons. There are not three gods. There is not one God in three parts. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Okay, did you follow that really easily? <laughs> Here's the upshot of this. Theologians have referred to the doctrine of the Trinity as a mystery since the beginning of the church. And I get that that sounds a little bit like a cop-out, like we just throw our hands up and I just tell you, believe it and don't ask questions. But that's not actually what we mean when we say that it's a mystery. What we're saying when we say that something is a mystery is this. If God is really God, we should fully expect that at some point we will not be able to fathom things about him. We can know him, but that does not mean we can fathom him. If God were like anything else in creation that we could fully analyze and understand, he wouldn't be greater than us. We can only know God insofar as he reveals himself to us, and he's revealed himself to us as a trinity. The mystery of the Trinity is not meant to make us confused or frustrated. It's meant to draw us into contemplation 
And ultimately, it's meant to make us fall on our knees in worship of that which is greater than us. So coming back to our passage, here's why the doctrine of the Trinity is really important to your daily walk and your daily life right now. When you are experiencing the absence of God in your life, and you read right here that Jesus promises he will be with us, that he will not leave us as orphans, don't you want to know that he meant it? Not in a cheesy metaphorical, my memory's gonna live on in your hearts once I'm gone. Like he really meant it. Now again, don't mishear me. Uh, We must distinguish that the Son is not the Spirit. What we wanna do is distinguish without separating. In Trinitarian theology, we always distinguish without separating. Can you repeat that after me? Say, we distinguish without separating. (laughs) What does that look like? A few verses before our passage, it looks like Jesus saying things like, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Son is not the Father. We distinguish them from each other, but they can't be separated. Similarly, the Son is not the Spirit. He and the Father are going to send the Spirit once he's ascended, but they can't be separated. That means that we can know, you can really know that Jesus is with you by his Spirit. We see him, even though the world doesn't, by his Spirit. That is the promise he is making here. No more of God's absence, only his presence by his Spirit. But how is he possibly going to keep that promise? Because the sin problem is real. Remember, God's absence is not the result of him leaving us. It's the result of us turning our back on him. It's the result of our natural tendency to keep turning our back on him, which is sin. The only way we'll be able to experience God's presence again, like we're meant to, is if our hearts are fundamentally changed. And as we've already said, commandments are necessary, but they can't change your heart. And community is necessary, but it cannot change your heart. So how is Jesus going to keep his promise to never leave us alone again, to not leave us as orphans, even though that's where our sin constantly leads us? Well, he's going to deal with the sin problem by going to the cross, because it's at the cross that we finally see where sin leads, to the utter and total absence of God. The natural result of sin is death. The natural result of sin looks like a man dying on a cross absolutely alone. If there is anywhere you should look to truly understand what God's absence is like, it is at the cross, where the only truly innocent person to ever live, the only person who has ever warranted God's loving presence, instead experiences God's absence. So we see the final full answer to our question, how should we respond to the absence of God? We look to the cross. What the Spirit will reveal to his disciples after all this is over and what he reveals to us again today is this. We are called to believe and trust that Jesus really did deal with our sin. He became sin who knew no sin. And I heard a pastor put it this way one time, said, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That prayer fell on deaf ears so that yours never would. And riffing on that, here is the gospel for you this morning. Out of love, Jesus entered into God's full, absolute, crushing absence so that you and I would never have to know anything except his loving presence. Jesus did deal with the problem of sin, and we know this because he didn't stay dead. Once that problem is dealt with, Jesus does send his spirit. And when the spirit reveals Jesus to the disciples fully, it changes their hearts. Exactly as he promised, the disciples go on to do greater works than he himself did. They spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
The commandments that once seemed impossible become their happy choice. The hard work of being the church, of loving the church, that became their life's mission, and they did it. And the same promise still stands for us today. If the Spirit is revealing the truth of the gospel to you for the first time or for the thousandth time, it is appropriate to let him melt your heart at the foot of the cross. Wherever you are experiencing God's absence in your life right now, remember that Jesus is there with you. He actually knows more than you what it means to feel the absence of God. Wherever you feel the crushing burden of the law and your failure to live up to his commandments, let the Spirit remind you that the law cannot touch you. Your sin problem is dealt with, and so you can strive to keep his commandments out of love and not fear, empowered by that same Spirit. And as we continue to walk together through a transitional season in the life of our own church, and as all of us are called to love the capital C Church for the rest of our lives, Remember, Jesus has promised to reveal himself to us in the church by his spirit who opens our eyes to see him again and again and again. One of the key ways he promises and main places he says he'll meet us is in the sacraments. So as we prepare our hearts um, to come to this table together to meet Jesus here, I invite you just meditate on the truth that Jesus entered into God's absence so that you never actually would have to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you did send your spirit on the church and that he's with us even now, that even when we don't feel it, he's there. Even when we don't see it, he is there calling us, comforting us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move today, lead us to deeper repentance and deeper joy. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the spirit. Amen.